Matthew chapter 8, verses uh, 5 through 17. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But you just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with the word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Well, good morning, everybody. I want you to think of those moments in your life when in the moment you think to yourself, I never am going to forget what this feels like. I'm never going to forget this moment. Whether it's a good moment, like a triumph or a victory or an accomplishment, and you think to yourself, I am never going to forget how good it feels to have done this. Or in a tragic moment, where you say to yourself, I will never forget this. I will never forget what happened. In fact, what's interesting about those moments is if you're ever doing any kind of counseling, those are the moments you actually want to get to. Because those are the pivot moments in our life where we make little deals with ourselves, we make oaths with ourselves, we make turning points in our life, and it defines who we become. But I've also observed that those moments are often the ones that we forget so quickly afterwards. If you're a journaler, which I'm not really a journaler, but I have a journal where I've put down standing stones in my life after the story in Joshua and have said this was such a mountaintop momentous experience or this was such a turning point that I never am going to forget this and I write about it. And it's funny when you go back, I haven't thought about those things in years. This morning in our text, you're reading about those moments in somebody's life. Somebody's moment where Someone was healed miraculously, and their life changed. Somebody, uh, right before this story, who has a demon cast out of them, people who are bringing people to Jesus, this is a moment in their life that they're like, we are never going to forget what happened, what Jesus did for us. And the sad thing is now, if you're anything like me, when you read these stories, you think to yourself, Okay, another healing, another demon cast out. We're in a, there's a few of us guys that are in a reading plan 
right now that goes through the gospel sequentially. And when you do that, when you read Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then John, you really do get to the point where you're like, okay, I can't stand another healing story. Another person healed, oh, there's Jesus casting out a demon, there's Jesus raising somebody from the dead. You're just, you get so comfortable with this that my challenge to us this morning is to go back and realize this was the turning point in somebody's life. This was, if you read this on the news, you would be astounded. Atheist child healed by religious healer is what the, the line would say with this centurion. How incredible would that be? You would want to look into that. You'd probably doubt it a little bit and say, "Did that? Is there something going on here? The people of Jesus' day were no different. These aren't made-up people. These aren't characters in a story that somebody wrote. These are real people who encountered the real healing presence of Jesus. And this morning, our goal is not just to go over and rehearse an old story and talk about how wonderful Jesus was then. The goal this morning is to encounter Jesus, who is alive and present, through this story about what he did 2,000 years ago. So I want to point out a couple of things to you this morning. I want you to notice four things in this story that will begin to get us back into the mindset of seeing Jesus in these stories. And the first thing I want to point out to you is the unexpected people that Jesus is dealing with. In this story, both the centurion and Peter's mother-in-law, there's something very unusual about the people that Jesus is encountering. In fact, if you were going to write Jesus' story, especially if you were a Jew, you wouldn't include either of these people in Jesus' life, because these are not the kind of people that Jesus would have found himself around unless Jesus was doing what he said he came to do, which is seek and save the lost. In fact, Jesus found himself around lost people all the time, and we're going to talk more about this next week because Matthew, who was a lost person, recounts his own conversion to Jesus, and he says, after that, Jesus was surrounded by the people you would never guess would be around Jesus, tax collectors like Matthew. Sinners, people that are in the category of not religious, not likely to be around Jesus. Jesus constantly finds himself around these people. And in the case of the centurion, he's really a person that you would not expect to ever come into contact with Jesus. Not only is he a Roman, not only is he employed by the oppressor of Israel, he's a Gentile, and he is not just a symbol of being unclean, which he is, He's a symbol of everything the Jews have hoped for that has gone wrong. The hope of the Jews was that there would be a new king like David who would come and throw off their oppressors, and they would live in the land ruling themselves with God's ordained king on the throne. But currently, the most powerful empire in the world, thousands of miles away, was ruling over them. And the way this worked was Caesar's representative in their neighborhood was this centurion. He was a walking reminder that there are a lot of unfulfilled promises that God has made for them. He's a walking reminder that they are actually subjects to a Gentile, not God-fearing king. Secondly, though, he was unclean. Because of his position and because he's a Gentile, He's actually not allowed to worship. He's not allowed to be around the things of God. And they were not allowed to be around him. So what becomes really important in this story that you need to know is a Jew could not enter his home without becoming unclean. 
This will become a pivotal part of what Jesus ends up doing in this story. Jesus, according to the law, could not go in this Roman centurion's house without himself becoming unclean. Of course, we know Jesus, whenever he comes into contact with uncleanness, it becomes clean. He doesn't become unclean. It becomes clean. Now, we find out some interesting information about this centurion in Luke. So you have three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are telling basically the same events. They're including slightly different details. They're painting a little bit different emphasis on certain things about Jesus. But Luke also tells us this story, and he includes a detail that you need to know. In Luke chapter 7, he says, and, and when they came to Jesus, what happened at first was this centurion was like, well, I, I can't go and talk to Jesus. So he has some Jewish friends that he gets to go and talk to Jesus. And when the Jewish friends come, they plead with Jesus earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation. He's the one who built our synagogue for us. This is really significant. A Roman centurion who, because of his position, would have been very wealthy, gave the funds to build a synagogue in Capernaum, a Jewish town. So he's somebody that immediately we start to see God is doing something in him before he meets Jesus. Ever met anybody like that? They're not all the way there yet. They're not a Christ follower yet, but you can tell there's fingerprints of God all over their life. This centurion, although all of those things are working against him, somehow God has begun to move in his heart to say, I love these people. I, I want to do something for them. I want to I put in the cornerstone of their house of worship. And so people come to speak on his behalf to Jesus, and they say, he's worthy. He's, he's a God-fearer. He's, he's not a Christ follower, but he's somebody that you really should consider and meet. So he comes to Jesus, and he says, uh, my Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, his slave. Here's another thing about this guy. This is not a common attitude for a Roman centurion. Slavery was ubiquitous in the ancient world. It was everywhere. Slaves were not well treated in the ancient world, but you certainly wouldn't come on the behalf of your servant, your property in their eyes, and plead with Jesus to heal them. There's a tenderness in his heart that we're going to see later is faith about to bloom in his life. So he comes to Jesus and he pleads on behalf of his servant. And Jesus' response is worth considering. Jesus is astonished at his faith, which we'll talk about in a minute. But Jesus makes another statement that sounds very cryptic at the beginning. Look at verse 11. He says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness, and in, their, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, the promise of the Bible is that at the end, at the, at the time when the world ends, there will be a great feast where everyone from all the nations, Revelation says every tribe, every nation, every tongue will come and they will feast with God forever. And Jesus is pointing to that moment. And he's saying many people from the east, from the west, foreigners, Gentiles, Romans, everybody will come and they will recline at the table with Abraham the father of the faith, and, and Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, and they will dine with God forever. And I just want to point out as a sidebar, you notice it says recline, okay? This is what they did in the ancient world. The, the Last Supper, 
picture is totally anachronistic because they did not sit at the table like we do. They lay on their arm together. And he says, they will all be laying there together around this table like a big family, people who are unclean. So when you lay, when you recline at the table, you don't have the personal space that you have here. You think it's bad when you sit next to a left-handed person at our tables because you're battling back and forth when you're cutting something. They are all laying next to each other, eating from the table of God. No more uncleanness, no more exclusion, no more people who don't fit the bill, but those who come to the feast are all united with God. I'm going to read you this passage from Isaiah because I think this is what Jesus is actually referring to. He's talking about this feast, and they would have known immediately what he's saying. In Isaiah chapter 25, Isaiah gives a vision for what the future people of God are going to look like. He says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. In the Baptist translations, it says, well-aged welches of rich food, full of marrow, and aged wine well refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. Listen to this. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away every tear from their faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now, where does Isaiah say this is going to happen? Did you catch that at the beginning of this passage? On the Lord's holy mountain, he will invite people to a feast. I want to point out something to you. Whether you've been here the last few weeks or not, you need to know that right before this, Jesus goes up on a mountain. And he preaches a sermon, which is creatively titled, The Sermon on the Mount. And when he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, he comes down from the mountain and immediately does ten miracles. Chapter 8, chapter 9, ten miracles. He comes down from the mountain, he begins healing people, casting out demons, he begins inviting people to the feast. Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy. He's taught about the kingdom He's modeling the kingdom, and now he is inviting people to come to the feast of the king. So Jesus is, is down with the people, healing their diseases. He is among very unlikely people, Gentiles, people from the east and the west, people who have been excluded, and he is inviting them to the feast that his father is throwing on his holy mountain. So the question then that everybody had to have been asking with the centurion is, okay, how do you get to come? How do you get in? How do you get to be a part of this? Because currently he's not a part of this. Currently he can't come to the holy mountain at all, which is the temple. He cannot come because he's a Gentile and because he's an oppressor. So the next thing I want you to see in this story is not just how unlikely it is that he would be dealing with a centurion. I want you to see the faith of the centurion. So the centurion comes to Jesus and he says to him, I want you to heal my servant who is languishing. He is suffering terribly. And Jesus says to him, now this is kind of interesting, it says, I will come and heal him in the ESV and probably in your translation as well. In verse 7, I will come and heal him. This is actually a question in the original. Should I come and heal him? Should I come and heal him? 
Jesus says. Whenever Jesus interacts with a Gentile, you see this in chapter 25 as well, Jesus gives them some kind of little pushback to see what's going on here. It's almost like, you're not just coming to me to be a vending machine, are you? Should I come? You think I can heal him? Should I come and heal him? And now we see the response that makes sense. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not even worthy for you to come under my roof. He's unclean. He knows it. He knows that Jesus can't come under his roof, but he says, so say the word and my servant will be healed. You don't even have to come in there. Just send your word in there and my servant will be healed. Now, he says, I am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I, I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled at his faith. Jesus was astounded. He, he, he wondered, is what this word means, at his faith. It's actually the only place in the Bible where Jesus marvels at somebody's faith. You have Jesus marveling four other times in the Gospels. It's always at people's lack of faith. He marvels that they are so faithless. But here, with this unlikely centurion, he marvels at his faith. What about his faith is so remarkable? What about it is worth marveling at? Because we should marvel at his faith. First of all, he comes and he calls him Lord. He says, Lord. This is significant because there is only one Lord in the Roman world, and his name is Caesar. There's only one king, there's only one ruler, there's only one authority. In fact, when he says, I know what it's like to be under authority, he's referring to Caesar. He is under Caesar's authority. But now he comes to Jesus and he says, Lord. This is borderline treasonous for him to say this. There is a new king. You know, Matthew's big theme is there is a new kingdom and a new king, and he's calling you to live in his kingdom. He's calling you to be a disciple. Well, he models discipleship by saying, Lord. That's how he addresses Christ, Lord. And then he explains it. He says, I get the system of authority. I know what it's like to give orders and have somebody do it. I know what it's like to be under authority. And by implication, he's saying, and I know how your authority works. I know that you, Jesus, don't just have authority. You are also under authority. See, he understands that Jesus doesn't do things of his own accord. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says this all the time. I didn't come to do my own will. I came to do my Father's will. In fact, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. Jesus, as the Son, as the one who took on flesh in our world, is under the authority of the Father. And what that means for the centurion is, this isn't just some guy who's in Judea or Galilee. This is a person operating with the full weight and authority of the God of the universe. And when he says, go, people go. But it's even more than that. He believes that Jesus, with a word, now note, Jesus has not done a miracle like this before. He believes that Jesus, with a word, can command the universe. He thinks that Jesus can command germs, and molecules, and demons, and the wind, and the waves, and all of that. He really is God's established authority on the earth, because when Jesus says something, it's backed up by the authority of God himself. So he says, I have not found faith like this in Israel. 
Now, why does he say that? Well, because the Jewish response to Jesus, as we're going to see as we go through Matthew, is they think that Jesus is a good guy some of the time, but they pit a difference between God and Jesus. Remember that story where the Pharisees come to Jesus, and Jesus is like, you don't get to ask me any more questions. Let me ask you a question. By what authority do you think I do the things that I do? See, that's the key question for the Jews, is whose authority do you think I'm under? And at one point, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're like, we've thought about this, we've decided you are under control of a demon. (laughs) They say, you are under control of Beelzebub. And it says there, Jesus does not do any more wonders among them. So the question for the Jews is, whose authority is Jesus under? That's exactly what the centurion answers. You have the full authority of God. You are Lord. You are in command. The universe obeys you. You are God himself, and Jesus marvels at his faith. He marvels. He's pointing out to everybody standing around, this is it. This is what it means. This is what it means to get in to the feast. If you trust in me, you're in. Doesn't matter what you're like, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter your past, it doesn't matter your track record. If you are willing to come to the end of yourself, if you are willing to throw yourself onto Jesus and get rid of all your attempts to save yourself, to come to the end of all your attempts to manage your own life and your own sin, if you will just come and trust that what he says goes, you're in. If you will come and believe that at the end of all things, he really will forgive your sins, and bring you into his heavenly kingdom. If you believe that he has the power not just to lay down his own life and take it back up, but to take your life back up in the end of all things, even though you are a sinful person, you're in. This is what faith looks like, to trust that the promises of God in Christ are going to come true, that we as sinful people can be forgiven and brought back into his family if we trust in the one Savior of the world. Jesus is almost putting up a living billboard to everybody around that says, you want in? Do it like this. Trust only in me. Jesus says to the centurion, let it be done for you as you have believed. Let it be done for you as you have trusted. This is the word for faith. We, we don't have a verb for faith in English, but their noun and verb are the same. Faith, believe, trust, believe. This, let it be done for you as you have faith. That's what Jesus says to him. Your faith has made you well is sometimes what Jesus says to people. It's all about the fact that he comes to Jesus and he's looking for physical healing, but he's also looking for spiritual salvation. Let it be done to you as you have believed. The third thing I want you to see in this story is the great compassion of Jesus. The great compassion of Jesus. You know, these healing stories and these exorcisms when Jesus goes to Lazarus' tomb and he weeps and he raises Lazarus from the dead, these are as much about Jesus as they are about any of the other characters, right? There's a reason we don't hear from the centurion again or his servant, but we hear all about Jesus. Jesus is the main character. And so in every healing story, there's something we need to learn about the characters that are there that he's interacting with, the people that he's engaging with. But most of all, these are recorded so that you would learn something about Jesus, so that you would encounter Jesus, that you would actually understand what it's like to be around him. And in the story this morning, God, because he inspired this word, he wants you to encounter something about Jesus this morning. 
He doesn't want us to sit back, like I said at the beginning, and say, wow, that must have been wonderful for them to get healed. He wants to invite you into an encounter of the same kind with Jesus. He wants to show you something about himself this morning. He wants to reveal something about his son, whether you know him or not. He's about to show you something about his character. Think about the why in these miracles. Why does Jesus do this? So you have a person here, and I always think about this with Lazarus. So Lazarus is Jesus' friend. He dies. Jesus leaves him in the tomb for several days, goes and raises him from the dead. And then presumably, Lazarus dies again. You know, you kind of think about it like Lazarus, when he was dead, and they're like, hey, you got to go back down there. And he's like, really? Yeah, we'll see you in several years, but you got to go back down and live on the earth, and you got to actually die again. You have to die twice. And you think about it, like, why did Jesus do this? Jesus has an eternal perspective. He knows where these people are going in the end. So why does he do this? Why does he heal? Why does he raise the dead? Why does he do exorcisms? The only explanation comes at the end of this story in verse 17. Matthew, in his gospel, is so great about giving us these little sidebars to help us understand what's going on. And in verse 17, after he tells the story of Peter's mother-in-law, he says, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He's like, I want to make a connection for you here. Jesus was doing this because it was prophesied he took our illnesses. He bore our diseases. The greatest why for Jesus to do these things is because of his great compassion for his people. Jesus didn't just come to meet our eternal needs. He came to meet our physical, emotional, temporary needs. How kind is that of Jesus that he could have just said, hey, you're healed because that's your big problem. Good luck finding a doctor. He could have easily said that. And in eternity, it would have been the same. But what Jesus did is he feels for people. He has compassion on people. And compassion is one of those reference emotions. You have compassion on someone or pity or mercy because you love them. There's something lovable about them. And Jesus is driven in the Gospels by his great love for people. In fact, there's a short little essay called The Emotional Life of Our Lord, written by B.B. Warfield, who's a 19th century theologian in America. And he goes through and he surveys every case where Jesus shows any kind of human emotion in the Gospels. And while Jesus does get angry righteously, there is one time in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus actually overflows with joy and shouts that God has revealed himself. The most common emotion that Jesus shows is compassion. In fact, the motivator for Jesus' ministry is compassion, his love for us. In the book, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, which is a great, really good book, he says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind, when I just say God, the picture that you develop in your mind is the most important thing about you. He says, and he goes on uh, to say, because we tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend, our our souls are wired in such a way that we live out, we live toward whatever we think God is like, that's pretty much how we live our life. And the character of God is revealed in Jesus in the Bible. So I don't know if you thought about it this way before, but God is Christ-like because that's the picture of God that we get. And and Christ is God-like. So 
it prohibits us from getting this kind of wonky theology that some of us just subliminally have where the Old Testament God the Father is this kind of angry and judicious and judgmental God, but then Jesus in the New Testament is this loving and non-judgmental and friendly version of God, and you get this kind of good cop, bad cop, Jekyll and Hyde version of God. That's not at all the picture of what the Bible portrays. See, Jesus, Paul says, is the perfect image of God. It's like the word that he uses there is like a signet ring that you stamp into wax. The perfect image of that ring appears in the wax. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. You want to know what God the Father is like? Read the Gospels. You want to know what Jesus is like? Read the Old Testament. It's the same. It's the same image, the same character. They are both driven by great love and compassion for their people. Now, here's something really interesting. A.W. Tozer says the most important thing about you is what you think about God. So he's writing that in the 1970s. I came across a blog this week that puts him in dialogue with C.S. Lewis. He's writing in the 1940s. And in C.S. Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory, which you have to read if you haven't read it, he says this. I read in a periodical the other day that the most fundamental thing about us is what we think of God. By God himself, it is not, he says. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. Okay, so you're in the Lewis camp or the Tozer camp. Which one are you in? I think these, these come together perfectly in our story because what you think of God is important about you because what you think of God, you need to be thinking of what he thinks of you. So when we think of God, we need a crystal clear picture of how God views us. What does God think about us? And what we see in this story from Jesus' great compassion for the centurion and for Peter's mother-in-law is that Jesus leads with love and compassion for his people. If you think about God and you think of anything other than God leading with love and compassion for you, you have your priorities out of whack when it comes to God. In fact, if you're motivated to serve God out of things like fear and shame and grudges and uh, just a sense of his overall authority, you've actually missed what God wants you to see in this encounter, which is the first thing you should think about God is his compassion and love for you. When God shows himself to Moses after the people have come out of Egypt, he introduces himself to Moses like this. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping his love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Reading that, what do you think God's priorities are? What do you think his view towards you is? I think about the fact that Jesus, who is eternally God, before he came to earth, before the earth was created, Jesus was just as much God as the Father is God, and just as much as the Holy Spirit is God. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit eternally existed completely and totally in love with themselves, pouring out their joy into creation. And before that even happened, the Son decides I'm going to go to the earth. In fact, while he could have just stayed in heaven forever, 
unaffected by us, he decided to put on flesh, come down to the creation, because as God, outside of putting on flesh, he could never die. And the problem was, human beings needed somebody to die for them. So Jesus decides, I'm going to go to earth, I'm going to put on flesh, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to experience all that it means to be human, I'm going to be killed on a cross in the end, so that I can save them. That's the whole motivation for all of this, is that Jesus, the way Paul puts it is, even though he was perfect, had never committed any sins, he became sin on the cross. Because every sin that's been committed by people who trust in him was put on him. If a murderer has trusted in Christ, murder was put on him. He was paying like he had done that. He comes, he puts on sin for us who are sinful so that we could be treated like the perfect son and daughter of God. So, when you throw yourself onto Christ and say, save me, heal me, be with me, Jesus says, that's exactly what I came to do. That's the plan. It's not out of the character of Jesus to have to forgive you. It's not out of Jesus' character or even out of his own interest to give you grace. It's not out of Jesus' character to say, yeah, you really have screwed this up but I came to give you a new life. I came to take what was yours and give you what was mine. His motivation for you is compassion and love. We often talk in these stories about how to imitate Jesus in what he's doing, but I want to challenge you this morning to think about imitating Jesus in what he's feeling and thinking. See, part of the Part of the point of this story for the people surrounding this centurion is Jesus is saying, you should see people this way. Not that you or I can die for them and save them, but we, our first priority for people should be compassion as well. So we don't just imitate what Jesus does, we actually should imitate what Jesus thinks and what he feels and his disposition towards people. If we are going to be imitators of Christ, we should imitate as much his compassion for people as we imitate his actions towards people. Here's the last thing I want you to see in this story. The response of service. Now, in in the next story, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, which I wish I had more time to cover this story, but the point I want you to see in this story is Peter has brought his mother-in-law into his house. Because notice, he's not at his parents' or his wife's parents' house. He's at his house, And his mother-in-law is lying sick with a fever in his house. And the chosen did a great job of portraying this. These people have lives, right? Peter has a wife. He's got family matters that he's trying to deal with. He's got all kinds of things. And Jesus actually comes into the middle of that life. And his mother-in-law is laying sick in his house, which should forever give us free of the sense that if you're following Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen to you. Because Peter is following Jesus, and his mother-in-law gets sick. He has to think like, Come on, I mean, I'm a disciple, I'm the disciple, I'm like the number one disciple, and my mother-in-law is sick in my own house. And Jesus comes in because of his love for Peter, because of his love for her, he heals his mother-in-law's fever, and then it says that when she was healed, in verse 15, he touched her hand, the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. She rose and began to serve him. See, this is how it works. Jesus heals, Jesus saves. Jesus ventures out to us, and then we begin to serve him. 
Right? There's so many parallels in this story to the Exodus story, which you've probably already gathered. But think about the way it works in Exodus. God doesn't reach out to the people in Egypt and is like, hey, you are in captivity. It's because you are evil. So here's Ten Commandments, and if you obey these Ten Commandments, then I'll think about getting you out of Egypt. That's not how the story goes. The story is God hears the cry of his people. He goes and rescues his people from, from Egypt, brings them out, sets them onto the way to the promised land, and says, hey, if you're going to be my people, here's Ten Commandments on how to live with me. That's how it worked then. That's how it works now. You don't have to clean yourself up for God. You have to do what the centurion did. You have to throw yourself onto him and say, you're my only hope. And then he says, okay, let me show you how to live. It's like paying a debt for somebody, but then also saying, hey, and now that that debt is paid, let me give you some pointers on how to live more responsible financially. It's like when Water 4, which many of you know from Dick and Terry Greenlee, who have a house here, when Water 4 started going in and drilling wells in places that have no clean water, one of the things they noticed is they would drill these wells and the people would have water and they would drink the clean water, but then they would use their same old dirty water for everything else. They would wash their dishes, they would bathe, they would use the other water for everything else. And so the sickness in these towns didn't go down at all. So they've got clean water, but they don't know how to use it. So what they did was they're, they're literally alleviating the water crisis in the world. And they say, you know what, before we do anything else, we've got to start teaching people how to be clean with their water. We've got to not only go in and solve their most basic need, we've actually got to teach them how to live in view of that. So now what they do is they go in and they teach them hygiene and health They teach them about medicine. They teach them about cleanliness. They teach them how to go about their life in a way that is safe and clean with the water that they've been given. That's exactly the picture of what happens when you become a Christian. God's commands are for your good, to eliminate idolatry from your life, to eliminate destruction from your life. He's not just willing to come and say, you're saved, good luck. He's coming in to say, and now learn from me how to live the life that you were created to live. She immediately gets up, and because of his great love for her, she begins to serve. She begins to follow. She begins to learn what it's like to imitate Jesus. We are healed, and then we are taught how to live. And that's the Christian life, coming to Jesus, putting your trust in him, and then learning to imitate him, learning to obey his commands. This morning, we're going to do communion together. And there's such a cool communion tie-in this morning that I want you to see. So the picture that Jesus gives to the centurion is intimate fellowship at a banquet. It's like being part of God's family at a giant family meal that will kick off and go for all of eternity. And in that passage in Isaiah chapter 25 that I read to you earlier, what Jesus points out is this will be a gathering of all peoples. They will come together and they will feast with the Lord, but I want you to pay attention to what they say. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. If you have the faith of the centurion this morning, if you put your trust in Christ, come to the feast. That's what communion is, is the first taste 
of that feast that we will share together. So that's one of the reasons the way we do it here is we get up and we come. We come and receive from the Lord. And when we do that, we are effectively saying, even with our bodies, I'm leaving everything else because this is my priority. To come to the table of the Lord is to forsake all other tables. It means I've put my trust in him, I'm serving him, I am nourished by him, I am taking from his table. So let us come this morning. Caleb and I are going to serve communion this morning. And as you come in your heart, think about this line from Isaiah, let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Let me pray and then we'll come to the table together. Father, we thank you for this picture, not just of a centurion, not just of a person who had great faith, but of you. Father, I pray that we would encounter you this morning in this story. Father, I pray now as we celebrate coming to your table, we would be filled with the joy of knowing you. That, Father, your spirit would overflow in our lives to bless the people around us that fueled and given new life by your spirit. We would give fruit in our lives for the people around us. So, Father, at your table this morning, we celebrate you. We love your salvation. We thank you for bringing us into your family, and we say we are glad, we rejoice in what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.